So this morning, we're really at the final part uh, of Mark's Gospel. We have uh, four weeks left uh, this week uh, and in the next, uh, I think it's two or three weeks. Um, and we've been spending a long time looking at uh, the example of Jesus uh, and the ways in which his example, his life, what it is he has done for us, uh, speaks to us in a very clear and powerful way. And how is it we can receive God's grace and God's transformation? Once we've finished Mark's Gospel, we're starting a new summer series uh, over July and August, and that's titled Killjoys. Um, this is a series in which we're going to be looking at the seven deadly sins. Uh, so pride, envy, anger, greed, gluttony, lust. So a nice light series for us uh, in the summer. Uh, each week we're going to be looking at one of these, and how it is that these sins kill our joy. So that's why it's Killjoys. Uh, the manner and the measure in which Jesus also offers us both freedom from these sins and true fulfilment um, outside of these sins and into a loving relationship with him. So that's going to be over July and August and I'm really excited about this series. I do believe that God is going to speak to us in a very practical way uh, and enable us to live a life of holiness as we pursue him and enjoy him. And we understand just all that God does in our lives um, by looking at his journey uh, to the cross, by looking at just the reality of his death on the cross for each one of us, and also the significance of his resurrection from the dead. And so this is what we're doing uh, in our passage in Mark chapter 15, uh, in verses 16 to 20. And we're looking at Jesus' journey to the cross, the moments immediately before Jesus died on the cross for each one of us. This, in essence, is the final part uh, of his journey. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Mark 15, uh, in verses 16 to 20. I'm reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, the words are going to be up on the screen. If you want an actual physical Bible, there's some up at the back there. Um, I'll give you a moment to collect it. Uh, and Mark uh, writes what it is that happens to Jesus just before he dies on the cross. So we read in verse 16 uh, of chapter 15. The soldiers led him, that is Jesus, away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, uh, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him and they began to salute him hail king of the Jews they were hitting him in the head with a stick and spitting on him getting down on their knees they were paying him homage after they had mocked him they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him Amen May God bless the reading of his word uh, this morning This is a difficult passage for us to read. Um, our passage this morning is all about opposition uh, and it's about opposition towards Jesus and that is something as we think of what happens to Jesus here, uh, that is something that applies to our lives as well. Uh, when we choose to make a stand for Jesus we will have individuals stand against us and we will experience hostility, opposition and anger. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 12 in fact all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted so this is a promise in God's word God promises that we will face persecution if we choose to live a godly life so it's as much a promise as the fact that God will never leave us nor forsake us that God is always with us in every season of life God promises that if we choose to live for him to step forward in faith we will face hostility and anger and persecution. 
Last weekend, uh, we were at a conference uh, in Poole, uh, in Dorset. I don't know if you know where Dorset is, but it's basically the most southerly point uh, in England. Uh, we left on Friday at five past eight in the morning, uh, and we arrived at 10 to seven at night. So it was like an 11 hour journey almost. Uh, it was pretty epic. And for some reason, our sat-nav took us through a wildlife resort, a safari park. So we ended up like driving through this road and there was wild horses jumping in front of us and it was just a bit crazy. So we reversed and left that park and went back in the motorway. It was all very confusing but we arrived at 7 o'clock on Friday night. We had a meal with the guys who were part of the conference. Very encouraging, felt very blessed and edified. Then the conference was on Saturday. And then on Sunday we went to the church service that was hosting the conference. Uh, and they have two sites. Uh, one of them is in the kind of central part of Poole in Dorset. And the other one has just opened, uh, and it's in an area that's very similar uh, to Denison. A lot of different cultures and, and people groups, and it's very exciting, there's a lot, a lot of life in, within that area. And we were walking just down the street, in the main street where the church was, uh, and Poole is a seaside town, so there's a lot of life, a lot of colour in the shops in the front. But we did notice this big black shop just two doors down from where the church was. And we looked at it and we thought, what's, what's going on here? The more we studied it, we realised it was a satanic tattoo parlour. And it had all this occult symbolism in the front. And these big bold words, God is dead. And I was kind of taken aback by it because we're about to go into worship, you know. And just this, this shop is, is standing right beside uh, the church. I got chatting to the pastors afterwards and they told me that when they opened that church a couple of years back, when they put... The, the sort of uh, the, the adverts and the promo material on the front of the church, they decided to put these words, God is dead, in front of this tattoo parlour. It just, in many ways, is a picture for us of the spiritual reality that we all face. Just as that shop opposed that church in a very physical way, if we make a stand for Jesus in our lives, then other individuals will express opposition and hostility towards us. And that doesn't mean that we respond with aggressiveness or hostility towards other people. If they're aggressive towards us, our call in Christ is to respond in love and in grace and in mercy. And that is impossible to do unless the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. God calls us to be a blessing, to love the person. We face hostility, we continue to love him. We face even more hostility and we continue to love and bless him. To follow Jesus means we'll face opposition. And we see this very clearly in our passage. As we follow the one who experienced opposition on a regular and consistent basis. And so I want us to look at verse 16 together. And to see the way in which Jesus faced this opposition. Verse 16, the soldiers led him away into the palace. That is the governor's residence. And called the whole company together. So as we see from this passage... The soldiers are gathering together in anticipation of mocking Jesus. And the impression you get is that these soldiers are bored. They have nothing else to do. They want to be entertained by Jesus. They're most likely tired from the intensity of being a Roman soldier in Jerusalem. And as soldiers, they would have had ingrained within them, just their whole lifestyle would have been one of aggressiveness and violence. And so what we read in the next few verses is nothing short of gr grotesque. What it is that Jesus experiences in his life. 
And we read of seven different things that happened to Jesus before the cross. So I want us just to go through these and to see the way in which Jesus faced this opposition. But at the same time, this was all part of God's bigger plan. Uh, And these will come up on the screen for you uh, as well. So number one, uh, they dressed him him in a purple robe. So the first part of verse 17, the purple robe represented uh, royalty. It was a symbol of the type of clothing that was worn by Hellenistic kings. And they're making a mockery of Jesus. They're saying to him, you really want to be a king. Well, here's your chance. There's just this sheer disdain towards Christ. Number two, they put a crown of thorns on him. The second part of verse 17. The crown of thorns was part of the mock royal attire like the robe. And they were maybe trying to make Jesus into a caricature of the crown that was found in the coins that were used in Roman times. Whatever their motive, it would have been deeply painful for this crown to be driven into his head, blood most likely dripping down his face. Number three, they began to salute him, verse 18. They cry out, Hail, King of the Jews! Through mockery, they're trying to replicate what they would traditionally shout out to the Roman Emperor, Ave Caesar! So this is an attempt to completely humiliate Jesus. Number four, they hit him in the head with a stick. And this is not just anyone hitting Jesus in the head with a stick. These are Roman soldiers. These are men who are trained for brutality. This would have been deeply painful for Jesus. Number five, the first part of verse 19 again, they spit on him. Now we know from our culture and from almost every other culture in the world, both today and throughout history, that one of the most horrific and repulsive things you could do is to spit on someone. It's an action that displays a sheer hatred for the other person. And this is what Jesus faced. Jesus faced being spat on. Number six, they get down on their knees and they pay homage. The second part of verse 19, William Lane notes of this, the several elements of this rough farcical play throw into bold relief the royal pretensions of Jesus and the vulgar mentality of the soldiery who regarded him only as an object of ridicule since he dared to rival the sovereignty of the divine emperor. So the soldiers do all of this out of a sheer hatred towards Jesus and out of entertainment. They're almost saying to Jesus, how dare you think that you are better or bigger than the Roman Empire? And so in light of that, this is what we're going to do to you. This is all that you're going to face. And finally, number seven, they strip him of purple robes and put clothes on him. Verse 20, the soldiers remove his mock clothing and give him back his own clothes. Now normally those who were condemned to be crucified were led away naked to the place of execution and scourged. Scourging was been struck with a lead-tipped whip and they would experience this while carrying the crossbeam. But because Jesus had already been scourged, he didn't receive us again. And if it had been repeated, he most likely would have died as he walked to the place of crucifixion. So this is all that Jesus went through. This is all that he faced before he faced the most painful of moments, the crucifixion. I want us to reflect on these seven points 
And I want us for a moment just to ask a question. What is the motivation of Jesus? Why did he choose? Because he did choose to do this. Why did he choose to go through all this? For each one of us. What was his drive? What was his desire? Jesus went through all of this because he wholeheartedly loves you. That is the incredible reality. Jesus loves you. I want us just to reflect on that. We see love when we see these seven points and we see the extent to which Jesus rescued us from our sin. And instead of me trying to explain the extent of Jesus' love towards each one of us, I'm just going to shut up for a moment and I'm going to read scripture and I want us to see the measure and the manner of God's love towards us. And these passages are going to be up on the screen as well. In Romans 5 and verse 8, Paul writes these words to the church in Rome, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies of God, Jesus chose to love us. And he chose to love us by dying for each one of us. How many times have you heard that? Many of us have heard that on a number of occasions, maybe even within this past week. And we can just take it for granted. It can be one of many truths that we've heard on many different occasions. And we've forgotten to let that truth penetrate deep inside our hearts. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Contemplate that truth for a minute. Rejoice in that truth. We were enemies of God and Jesus died for each one of us. John 3.16 For God loved the world in this way. This is the way he loved us. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God gave his only son to die in our place for our sins. And that truly is a picture of sacrificial love. He gave up so much so that we could have so much, we could have life in all its fullness. Reflect on that. That's an incredible truth. Jesus died for us. God gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, if you choose to put your faith and trust in him today, you will not perish. You will have everlasting life. Galatians 2.20 Paul is given a bit of testimony here and he says I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me the life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God if you're a Christian today then you're living your life in faith in the reality of the cross and the resurrection and all that he has done for you I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. Jesus loved you and he gave himself for you. Is that good news? Do we rejoice in that truth every day? It's the same message that we preach every single Sunday. God loves you and he will always love you and he has given you so much. And if you repent of your sin and you believe in him, you will not perish. You will have everlasting life. We preach the same message every single week at Denison Baptist. Because that is at the heart of who we are. 
That is at the root of all that you do in your life. If you hold on to this gospel truth, then you'll have clarity in your life. It doesn't mean that everything will work out okay, but God will be with you in every moment because of the reality of the cross and the resurrection. Do you know Jesus this morning? Do you know him? When I say no, I don't mean just an intellectual understanding of who he is. Do you really know Jesus and the love that he has for you? You know, I could give you my CV this morning and you could memorise that CV and you could say to yourself, having memorised it, I know Mark. I know his likes and his interests, his hobbies, all the different jobs he's done, his height. I don't know if you put your height in your CV, but I know all the different things about who Mark is. But the reality is, it's only really Pauline who knows me. Pauline knows me. It's not just head knowledge for Pauline. It's heart knowledge. You can know a lot of information about someone, but do you really know them? You can know a lot of information about God. You can have a CV level of understanding of the Bible, who God is. It can all be up here, but do you experience God in your life? Do you know the joy of his fellowship, of a living relationship with him? Do you wake up in the morning and rejoice in the fact that you are saved? Do you sing the songs that we've sang already? Do we rejoice in the reality of the resurrection? It's one thing to know God and his word. And it's another thing to know, to really know him. And to enjoy the fullness of his fellowship. Our head knowledge needs to become heart knowledge. And that is through our work of the Holy Spirit. And this is why Jesus says early on in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark 12, 30, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. You see, your heart and your mind are together there. Both are needed. Yes, we know, we perhaps know a lot about who God is, but we need to really experience him in our lives. And that comes with an openness to the Spirit of God being at work in our life. One of the missional communities uh, I'm a part of uh, decided to go to Connick Hill uh, in Loch Lomond. And again, we kind of got a wee bit lost, so I shared already that we got lost going down to Pool. But we also got a wee bit lost going to Connick Hill, which we shouldn't really have because it's not far away. Uh, one of the guys ended up driving past the Wallace Monument for some reason. But uh, we arrived at Connick Hill, it took us about an hour or so, um, and we were walking up the hill uh, and we decided just to invite God in the journey and so we said before we, we started climbing the incline we just said to God okay we're going to invite you God on this journey we ask that you would be with us that you would protect us that we would enjoy your presence uh, as we walk up this hill we got to the top well four out of the seven guys got to the top um, and as we got to the top we thought well, it's, it's pretty biblical to pray on top of a mountain so we'll do that we'll pray and so the four of us just started to pray. We gave God thanks for his creation, for all that we could see, and it was absolutely stunning. There wasn't any wind. It was just so clear. The water was so calm. We gave God thanks for his incredible creation. We prayed for many of the guys who play football with us who don't know Jesus. We asked that God would do a work in them. And we also prayed that God would make us more faithful and fruitful in our own lives. And we all finished praying. And we could really sense God's presence was there. 
we were on top of this hill and we could really sense the spirit of God at work in our lives. It had went from this intellectual knowledge of who God is to this experience of God on top of this hill. We could sense it. We knew that God was with us, that God was pleased with us because we were in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, shares us something of what this looks like in terms of having this intellectual knowledge of who God is, but also an experience of God in our lives. And he shares a story quoting Thomas Goodwin. And he says this, A man and his little child are walking down the road and they are walking hand in hand and the child knows that he is a child of his father and he knows that his father loves him and he rejoices in that and he is happy in it. There is no uncertainty about it all but suddenly the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child and picks him up, fondles him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, and then he puts him down again, and they go on walking together. That is it. The child knew before that his father loved him, and he knew that he was his child. But oh, the loving embrace, this extra outpouring of love, this unusual manifestation of it, that is the kind of thing the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are God's children. Is your knowledge of God just head knowledge? Or is it also heart knowledge? Do you experience God on a regular and consistent basis? I honestly believe the more you have both head and heart knowledge of who God is and what God has done for you, the closer to God you'll be, you'll rejoice in his intimacy. The less you know God, both head and heart, the less you'll reflect God in your life. The reality is that that kind of life means you'll face decay and destruction. If you choose to reject God, you choose not to know God in your life, then God says through the prophet Hosea in Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. My people are, are destroyed for lack of knowledge. There's a connection here. If you know God in your life, you will flourish. If you don't know God, or you choose not to know God in your life, you'll experience destruction. You'll decay spiritually. This helps us to understand the soldiers in our passage this morning. They do what they do because the reality is they carry a lack of knowledge. They don't know Jesus in their life, who he really is. Their lack of knowledge causes them to do what it is that they do, to dress him in a purple robe, to put a crown of thorns on him, to mockingly salute him, to hit him in the head with a stick, to spit on him, to get down on their knees and out of a desire to humiliate Jesus, pay homage to him. This mock coronation is rooted in a lack of knowledge and who his son really is. The soldiers wholeheartedly do not believe that Jesus is God. They're bored, they're aggressive, they're wanting to be entertained and they carry as Roman soldiers a deep hatred for Jewish people. Their lack of knowledge has been replaced with something else. Now we may never do what the soldiers did in this passage but we're all capable of it. Every single one of us 
is five minutes away from complete and utter disaster. And in those moments of sin, we push God to the side and we push his knowledge to the side. May God in his mercy show his grace, if that's any of us today. If you look back in this past week and you see the ways in which you have chosen to reject the knowledge of God in your life, may God show you mercy today and may you embrace his goodness and his love and his knowledge. The reality is that we need to know God more and more in our lives so that we can be faithful and fruitful in reaching a lost Denison, a lost Shettleston, a lost Glasgow, a lost Scotland, a lost neighbourhood, a lost workplace, a lost friends group. We need to carry a knowledge of God in our lives for us to connect with those who are lost. The attitude of the soldiers towards Jesus is rooted in this lack of knowledge. And many people in our lives, they carry a lack of knowledge and they live accordingly. They live in such a way that is contrary to God and his word. Nicky Gumbel uh, shares how he's often told by people in his Alpha course, straight away at the start of the course, that they don't believe in God. And he says to them, tell me about this God that you don't believe in. And he says that when they start to explain this God to him, his response is often one of, I don't believe in that God either. I don't have an understanding that God is this particular person or this particular being who you think is. I believe in the God of the Bible and I believe he is faithful and just and he is the one who will rescue you from your sin. So how do we carry that knowledge to a lost world? To a people who don't reflect what it is that we see within God's word and who live their lives in such a way that they make a mockery of Jesus as we see in our passage. Well, I want to ask three questions as we close. For us to, to identify the ways in which we can grow in our knowledge of God, but also for the ways in which we can connect with those who do not carry this knowledge. And so ask yourself these questions. And I'm asking these questions on myself as well. It's so important that we know God and we live for him and we choose to reach out to those who are lost. So the first question, can I honestly say that I'm rooted in God? Can I honestly say that I'm rooted in God? As you ask yourself that question, I'm going to ask you to ask yourself three other questions to answer that question. Am I someone who every day is word-centred? Are you waking up to God's word? As you rest at night time, are you going to bed with God's word? Are you word-centred in your life? The psalmist writes in Psalm 1 verses 1 to 2, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. And this is the alternative lifestyle. The psalmist says, instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. Do you meditate upon God's word day and night, morning and evening? That's a calling that God places upon our lives. I've been using the Read Scripture app uh, every day and I've been reading God's word day and night and I can honestly notice a difference in my relationship with God. 
as I've chosen to spend time in God's word in the morning and at night time? Am I someone who every day is word-centred? Is all that I do fueled by prayer? Am I praising God and thanking him when all is well and I can see God's blessing upon my life? And do I look to him and do I seek his face when life is difficult, when it really is tough? Prayer can often feel like the most difficult thing we can do, but prayer is always the most important thing that we do in our lives. Is all that I do fueled by prayer? Am I choosing to keep on being filled with the Spirit? Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Spirit. And it's present continuous. Keep on being filled. We're called to constantly be filled with God's Spirit. It's an attitude that says Christianity is impossible without the Holy Spirit. And it's a prayer that says, God, today I ask that you fill me with your Holy Spirit. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. That is our prayer every day. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Take me, melt me, mould me, fill me. Renew my heart. Unless we're living that way, it's going to be absolutely impossible to reach the lost people in our lives. So, the three sort of smaller questions. Am I someone who is every day word-centred? Is all that I do fueled by prayer? Am I choosing to keep on being filled with the Spirit? And the answer to those, those questions answers that first question. Can I honestly say that I'm rooted in God? Word-centred, prayer-fueled, spirit-filled. Second question, am I sincere and intentional in my friendships? So reaching others should be the most natural thing for us. Friendship is the, the lifeblood of discipleship. We reach those who are struggling, those who are lost, by making friends with our people, by sharing common interests, by inviting people over to our house for a meal. People are going to be more open to the good news when they see the love that we have for those in our lives who are lost. Do you love people because you want to see them saved? Or do you want to see people saved because you love them? Let me say that again. Do you love people because you want to see them saved? Or do you want to see people saved because you love them? Our love is unconditional. Our love is for all people. And so it has to be the second option there. You want to see people saved because first and foremost, irrespective of how they respond to the gospel, you love them. With that as our foundation, we share the gospel. We love people, we make friends with them. And with that as our foundation, we share the gospel in word and deed. So am I sincere and intentional in my friendships? And number three, do I believe that God is going to transform others? Do I carry faith in my life that God is going to change people? Do I honestly believe that God is going to bring about transformation? Am I confident of it? Am I expectant? Do I read God's word and see the way in which God transformed people's lives? And do I then believe that God is going to do the same in my life? in my community, amongst my friends. So who are the people in your life who you can pray for and reach out to? And do you believe that God is going to change their life? You know, it's one thing understanding who it is you need to connect to, but do you also believe that God is going to transform them? Do you carry that confidence that God is all-powerful, 
and he is a God of transformation. So this is how we carry our knowledge of God to those who have no knowledge of God. We ask ourselves these three questions. Am I honestly rooted, connected to God? Am I sincere and intentional in my friendships? And do I believe that God is going to transform other people in my life? Is there anything more important in your life? Honestly, is there anything else more important? Anything greater? This is a calling that God places upon each one of us to fulfil the Great Commission as we live out the Great Commandment. May this be all that we live for and may we know God's fullness, God's joy and God's grace in every moment. Let me pray for you and then we're going to spend some time in response and worship. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that uh, the, the life of a, a follower of Jesus is very exciting. Uh, it is one where we can experience adventure. Uh, and Lord, we know that the Great Commission, the call to go and make disciples of all peoples, uh, is one that can seem quite daunting at times. But Lord, we thank you that you give us the gift of boldness and bravery and courage. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us to be bold and courageous this week. Lord, I pray that for each one of us, as we think of maybe one or two people in our lives, that we would be asking, we would be seeking, and we would be believing that you're going to help us, that you're going to give us opportunity to share our faith, and that you would use us to reach him. And Lord, I pray that this week would be a week of salvation, that we would see many people come to know you through the ways in which we are sincere and intentional in our friendships. So would you bless us as we respond in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.